Well, we're back in our sermon series, When You Come Together, from 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. I've been really excited to walk through these passages with you for a variety of reasons. But just to kind of summarize as to why we're here again, this is a passage where the Apostle Paul writes to the New Testament church of Corinth, and that we get to benefit from hearing his teaching, giving them directions on how they are to relate to one another as a local church. We are designed as believers to operate in community with one another. And Paul is spending some significant energy on explaining how it is we're supposed to do that, both how we're supposed to think rightly about our local gathering and how we're supposed to exercise the gifts that God has given us in that local gathering. Now, there are many practical ways that we can and should consider how to serve one another in the church. But none of our service will matter one bit if we don't do it out of love for God and for one another. Today we're going to walk through one of the most famous love passages in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be through most of that chapter today. We're going to back up and start in chapter 12 where we kind of left off last week and end up in, uh, that, right in the thick of those love verses in chapter 13. Now before we get going, I want to say a couple things. First off, I've been investing a lot of energy and effort into studying about prophecy and tongues and cessation of gifts and continuationism, all these kinds of doctrinal categories to try to serve you best, and for my own good as well, and looking forward to doing that as the text allows. I thought I'd get to that this week. It's actually going to be next week that the text is more specifically going to deal with some of those things. So for those of you who are waiting for that, I'm kicking the can down the road one more week, and we will get there. Don't worry about that. But I think that there are two reasons that this particular passage on love deserves special attention from believers. Two reasons. First, love is so central to the Christian life. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he summarized by saying, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second greatest commandment is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. We just repeated that a bit in the catechism that we did just a few moments ago. But love is so central to the Christian life, so important to the Christian life, that it could be rightly said that in eternity, people will be divided into two eternal camps, those who love God and those who don't. Those who love God and therefore will spend an eternity with him in heaven, and those who don't love God and will spend an eternity in hell, separated from him for forever. But the second reason that I think that the topic of love deserves such special attention is because we need help understanding it rightly. All of us, every one of us, comes to a text like this with a corrupted view of love. All of us, in varying degrees. You've been hurt before, and you've hurt other people. In fact, it is very typical that the person who is supposed to love you the most has hurt you the most. And so when we talk about a topic like this, Paul's going to offer a bunch of correction and, uh, and definition to it, and it's incredibly helpful that we pause and slow down and take a look. Paul, you tell us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what love is and how it's to be experienced and acted upon in the Christian life. And so that's what we're going to do a bit today, is spend some time in that direct teaching. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, We're going to be verses 27 through chapter 13, verse 7. I suspect that's where we'll land uh, in our time today. I'm going to read those out loud and then uh, pray, and we'll go back through. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, we love you and trust you and need your word. This morning, as we look at this super important topic, Discuss how it is that Christians are to feel love for each other, act upon love for each other, make the decision in our lives, choose to love one another well. God, we need great help in this. Perhaps the deepest felt emotion that a person can feel is love. Father, we also know it is far more than merely an emotion. And so, Lord, please help us. Help us to understand rightly that we would be informed accurately about what love is, and that we'd be able to exercise it well, Lord. Help us to be the kind of people that are marked by our love for you first, others second, and self last. And send your Holy Spirit today to open our hearts to hear these things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So back to the beginning of our text today in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This verse here is simply a summary of what Paul was just explaining in the previous verses and what we covered last week and a little bit the week prior to that. If you are a Christian, then you are a member of the universal body of Christ. And as a member of the universal body of Christ, you are to live out and work out in close relationship that membership in a local body of Christians, a local church. Jesus has provided for his church through the giving of individual spiritual gifts that we are each to put to work for the good of the church itself. Here Paul gives a list in the following verses of some of the gifts that can be experienced in the New Testament church, verses 28 through 30. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then, gift, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, this is a little bit of a list of spiritual gifts. And earlier in chapter 12, we saw a different, similar, but a different list of spiritual gifts. And I argued back then, and I'll, I'll say again right now, I don't believe that when we see these lists in the New Testament, they're intended to be exhaustive. Each time we see these lists, they're a little bit different than the others. It seems more as though they are a sample list of the kinds or types of gifts that are given to New Testament believers for the building up of the church. 
And here, Paul's going to make this list even clearer as he breaks out these pieces by rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? He continues on with this line of thinking. And the point here is obvious. He expects that the answer to those questions is no, not all. Just as he has been saying over the course of this last chapter and a half that we're going to experience a handful of different people, individuals within the church that will have differing spiritual gifts. So the, the point, again, is very clear. Paul is confirming that not everyone will possess each of the spiritual gifts. We unpacked that a bit more last week, as I think earlier in chapter 12 we saw that even clearer. But here he's saying it yet again. Now, I think that this kind of repetition, this apparent redundancy, is here in the Bible to especially warn us from the kind of errors that are pervasive in our day. Certainly the Corinthians may have faced those errors, or at least Paul was concerned that they could. And I think that this is absolutely applicable to our day as well. There are today, you need to know, whole movements of professing Christians that make an entire list of fallacious claims regarding spiritual gifts. And one of the most illegitimate of these misconceptions is that there are still apostles today just like Paul as he's writing 1 Corinthians here. So I want to pause for a moment and just take a quick excursus on the idea of an apostle what an apostle is and how we're to view these kinds of passages. There's a difference between a capital A apostle and a little a apostle categorically. And when I say that, I know that's not in the Greek. It's not the, the Greek shows a different word. No, context will dictate how we're to see the different uses of that same word. And this is nothing novel. This is all over the New Testament. So, for example, the word brother can be used to refer to a biological brother, biological sibling, or to one's Christian brother. And the context will determine which use is being, being handled there. The word elder can either be referring to the office of elder or pastor in the New Testament, or it can be used to refer to an older person. Just like the word deacon could be referred to as an office or that somebody would serve in the church or serve one another even outside of the church. And the context in each situation will dictate how we're to see the dual use of that word. The word apostle in Greek simply means sent one, sent one. Apostles are representatives who are sent by someone. And the way that we would determine the critical difference between capital A apostles, what I'm kind of using that term, and little a apostles is the sender who has sent that person. That will determine the kind of apostle that they are. Some apostles in the New Testament are sent by churches. So who sent you? Oh, a bunch of churches or that church over there. These are my, this is what I'm calling little a apostles, okay? This is office holders in the church. It sounds like they have a particular design in mind. 2 Corinthians 8.23 gives a good example of this category of little a apostle. And as for our brothers, they are messengers or apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. So they are sent by churches to other churches. These are apostles of, little, of churches, little a apostles. And we absolutely still have this kind of apostle today. Anytime that you and I would commission somebody out to be a missionary or perhaps a church planter in a new location, 
Maybe even just send somebody out to deliver a message or a care package or something like that to someone else. There's a sense in which they are an apostle. They are being sent by churches. I'm an apostle of the mission church going as a representative to bring you this gift. That kind of apostle absolutely still does exist today. However, the New Testament has another category for apostle. And that's what I was calling the capital A Apostles. These are the foundation layers of the church. They were sent directly by Jesus personally. They were eyewitnesses of the physical resurrected body of Jesus. And they were authenticated by the very same kinds of miracles that Jesus himself performed. They were distinct. Ephesians 2.20 tells us about them in a foundation way. It says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets. The idea there is that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of this church. The prophets, the writers of the Old Testament, the apostles, the writers of the New Testament are the foundation upon which the rest of the church is built. And just as any renovation of the upper parts of your house does not demolish and start over with a new foundation, but builds upon it, that's how the church is built today. There is a foundation, a perfect foundation laid by our Lord. And you and I build upon that today in the growth of the church. That foundation building day is over. And the apostles who comprised it are now with the Lord. So practically, if a person were to say to you, I'm an apostle, you should probably ask him what they mean by that. And if he says, I've been sent by a group of churches in Philadelphia to plant churches out in Utah, well, praise be to God, we can absolutely affirm that kind of apostle. In fact, did you know that's how Utah church plants started back at the late 1800s and the early 1900s? Churches in the East Coast, a bunch of Baptist and Presbyterian churches, uh, a large group of them from Philadelphia, got together and said, let's send Christians into the pioneer mission field of Utah. They put ads in the paper. People came to respond and they sent them out here to be missionaries. They were apostles of those churches in that sense. Praise be to God. But if that same one who said, I'm an apostle, and you asked, well, what kind of apostle? What does that mean? If he were to say, well, I've been sent by Jesus according to the Great Commission. Jesus does absolutely say in Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them, right? Well, that doesn't distinguish between Christians. That's the kind of charge that all of us have been given. So again, we can say amen to that. We've all been sent. In that sense, all of us, are a kind of little a apostle. We have all been sent out into this world to do the missional work of kingdom building. But again, that kind of apostleship in no way distinguishes between spiritual gifts of individuals. But if that character who calls himself an apostle were to say, I'm an apostle of Jesus, just like Peter and James and Paul, you say, nope. Why? Because the Bible tells us that what it takes to be an apostle is a handful of things. And first, what I already said there, they must be a witness of the physical body of the resurrected Christ. They actually have seen Jesus. Not spiritually, not had a dream, not something like that. Actually seen the resurrected Christ. That is one of the things that has to be done. Additionally, they are authenticated by miraculous works. Jesus says to his disciples, you'll do greater things than the miracles that I've done. Some of them raised people from the dead, healed them in a whole variety of different ways. But furthermore, Paul, the apostle, is called the last. 
the last appointed by Jesus. He is the last apostle to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ and to be sent directly by Jesus. Who sent you? Jesus. He came down. He face-to-face saw me. He sent me on a mission. That's what Paul could say. That's what Peter could say. That's what James and John could say, those apostles. I want to show this to you in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 15, it says this, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Last of all, the last apostle, the last witness of the resurrected Christ is, by his own words, Paul. He even says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, the apostle, was the last commissioned directly by Jesus, capital A apostle in the New Testament. It does seem that the Apostle John and perhaps a few others may outlive Paul in their life, but he was the last one sent. You and I will never be sent like that. So there are no more capital A apostles, and there never will be. This office is closed. This is why we're not holding the Bible open and saying, well, who else is going to put some more books in here? Who's going to add something? Who's going to add a letter? Third Corinthians. Who's going to add something after that? None. Because the apostles, directly commissioned by the Lord, are now with him. In fact, this office is filled and closed, and that's even further evidenced by the fact that no one is ever encouraged to seek the office of apostle like this. Ever. In fact, what we're about to see is that Paul is going to encourage us to desire higher gifts. We're going to be there in just one second. He's, going to, he's about to say that. But he makes it very clear he's not talking about apostle. He calls out individual gifts, does not tell us that we should seek to be an apostle because the Lord Jesus himself makes that decision and chooses who would do that. Now notice here before we move on in verse 28, there's a list here, an ordering in this list. You see those ordinal phrases, first, second, third? God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, and he goes down the line. It is possible that the whole list is designed to be seen in a very specific order. But at the very least, we can be certain that those first three are definitely even listed out to be seen in an order, a specific order. And that's actually really important to understand the next verse. So the question is, what's the order and why are we supposed to see it this way? I think that the gifts in this list are ordered according to the range of their reach and service in the church. The extent of their usefulness to the body of Christ, the churches. In other words, the office or gift here of apostle is of service to the greatest number of members in the body. Undoubtedly, absolutely without question, all of us benefit from the work that these apostles did in delivering the teaching of Jesus through this written word. You and I can quite literally say that we owe our salvation to God's work through those apostles. We are believers today because of what he did through those apostles. And we are right now reading that word, gathered around as the church was in Acts 2, the teaching of the apostles. That's what we're doing right now in our sermon time. Paul here is encouraging us to think 
rightly about this. After apostles comes prophets, third teachers. And I think, again, that's regarding uh, their service to the next greatest number and their usefulness to the next widest range of believers and so on. And I'll make that case even further in next week because we'll unpack in the following verses that come after our text today what I think a prophet is, tongues, what those are, what teachers. We're going to unpack those a bit more when we get to the chapter 14. Understanding this will help us understand why it is he includes the very next line in verse 31. Look what he says. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now pause for a second. Because if you were following the flow in chapter 12, you'll remember that he said, God determines who gets gifts, not you. That's the first thing. Second, he says, don't judge others on the basis of their gift or you on the basis of yours. You gotta think rightly about this. God has designed the individual parts to uniquely work within the body for one big purpose. And now he's saying, but desire the other gifts, the higher gifts. How does that harmonize with what we've already been told? Well, one of the primary things that Paul is encouraging over the course of the next two full chapters is that he wants for the Corinthians to desire to maximize their service in the church. He wants them to ache to be of the greatest possible benefit to their church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says it even more explicitly than I think than it even does here. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You see, it is good to want to serve your church and to want to do that more and better than you are right now. Think about a role of a father. I love my kids. It'd be, it'd be crazy for a dad to just go, I'm a good enough dad. I don't care to benefit them any more than I have. I have no desire to grow in my effectiveness and efficiency and parenting my child. No, on the contrary, I ache to give the greatest possible benefit to my kids. And I think in the same way, that's how we're to think as a church. The desire must not be self-serving, but it must be for the greatest advantage of the rest of the body. We see a really negative example of this going poorly, the opposite, the warning, don't do this kind of example in Acts chapter 8. There's a man named Simon. He was a sorcerer, a magician in Samaria. It says this about him in his introduction in Acts 8. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Did you get it? Told everybody, look how great I am. I'm doing all those magic tricks. People thought, wow, this guy's great. He wanted everyone to know that. And sadly, even after the gospel is preached, this same arrogance continued. When Peter and John came to Samaria, they began to lay hands on the people there. And the people were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon sees this, and he gets greedy for that power. He literally goes to the disciples and bribes them, offers them money that he could have that power that they have. Luckily, Peter knows what's going on, and he doesn't go, oh, what a well-desired, yeah, you want to help more people too. No, he calls him to repentance. He's repent of this. I know your wicked heart. And he calls him out there. So we are to desire the higher gifts, but we must take care that it is not envy or greed for the approval of men that drives that desire. Let it be out of an eagerness to be of greater service to the people of God. 
quick pop quiz kind of question here for you. Does the Bible say that it is a good and noble thing for a man to desire to be an elder at a church? Yeah, exactly it does. Why? It's good to desire so you can be in some position of authority over us? No, it's because if you desire to be of the greatest service to more people, and that's a good thing to desire. It's the same idea here. Earnestly desire the higher gifts that you may benefit more, better than you do today. But Paul adds on this line as well, that I will show you a still more excellent way. I think that Paul's about to break from his current line of thinking, and he will turn back in chapter 14, verse 1. And I think you can tell this. I'll explain even more next week when we get to there. But if you look at 14, verse 1, it looks almost exactly the same as as the beginning of uh, verse 31 here. So it sounds like he bookmarks this thought, moves away to explain something very important that does relate. It's not a rabbit trail. It does matter. But he explains why what he's talking about is so important. Something comes to mind that has to be said, and then he's going to return back to the original line of argumentation and of encouragement. I think he's going to come back in chapter 14. What that means is all of chapter 13 is designed to stand here encouraging us to do all the things he's already brought in, all the spiritual gifts he's introduced already as an expression of love. Paul wants to make sure that they are thinking and feeling rightly about the exercise of the spiritual gifts. It's not just utilitarian. Hey, tasks have to get done. You are good at this. You're good at this. Get to do that. No, 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 no. This is to be done as an act of love for your brothers and sisters. That's what he's about to argue. So follow me through verses 1 through 3, if you will, in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul here tells us of the importance of all the things being done in love. He'll go on to mention, in this passage here, and it'll continue, multiple spiritual gifts. You've seen those there? We see tongues, prophetic powers, understanding, uh, knowledge, wisdom. Uh, We see faith. We even see uh, generosity. He's willing to give stuff up and even to lay his life down to martyrdom. Hypothetically, if a believer were to put to work a whole host of impressive displays of spiritual gifts, Tongues, prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, all these things. Without love, nothing is gained. I think this is a bit of a poetic section. I do think that it is a hypothetical. I don't think that a believer will operate this way based upon the encouragement he's about to give. But he emphasizes just how important love is. The command for us to serve our church out of love is nothing novel to us. If you're a Bible reader, you're not at all surprised to hear this kind of command. It has been commanded many times, most notably by Jesus himself. One of my favorite places you see him summarize the command to love your fellow disciples, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world's gonna watch how you love one another and the way that you do it. Not just the fact that you're able to land into your utilitarian slots, Not just the fact that you're a well-oiled machine in what you produce, but that there's love. 
There are plenty of big businesses out there that run very smoothly. They set a goal, they they go out to attain it, and they make a major profit and provide services. But the world doesn't look to that and go, man, that must be of Jesus. The world should look to the church, and the way that we do what we do really matters. It displays that we are disciples of Jesus. A church that has no love is not a church at all. Now, while Paul just stated how important it is for us to put our spiritual gifts to work out of love for one another, next Paul tells us a bit more about what love is. In this famous paragraph that you may have heard, we're going to read verses 4 through 7. You may have seen this written before, not surprisingly. Let's walk through it and see how it applies to us today. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't know about you, but personally, the experience that I've had with this verse, I see this mostly uh, brought up um, at weddings or maybe in a, a Christian Valentine's Day card. Okay. No, I, I don't think we should harp on that. I don't, I don't, Part of me wants to kind of hammer on, that's not about, that's not about marriage. <laughs> but of course that love should be expressed in your marriage. Of course this should be true between a husband and a wife. And so, yes, it would certainly apply there. But here it's actually, if you're seeing this, it's actually talking about the way that you should be expressing love towards one another in a local church. This is couched right between all those passages that say when you come together, he's going to come right back to the use of spiritual gifts in the local church. As you're experiencing those things, as you're operating with those things, love must be in the heart and on the mind. Do you realize that nearly all of the love one another passages in the New Testament are directed to the church? Of course, we should love our non-believing neighbor, to be sure. But the primary charge is that you love your fellow Christian. Galatians 6.10 says something very similar to that idea in this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to the household of faith. So should you do good for your non-believing neighbor? Absolutely. Should you have a kind of love in your heart for your non-Christian neighbors and non-Christian family members and non-Christian coworkers? Yeah, absolutely you should. But there is a special kind of love and a special prioritizing of your loving energy demanded of you regarding the fellow Christians that are in your lives. I want to walk through this together, this list, a little bit slowly here, and imagine how this list should look in the context of a local church. How should this look for us? First, love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. As God is patient and kind with us, so should we be with other believers in our lives. God is working on that brother or sister. He's got a good work happening. He is sanctifying that soul. You may know the doctrine of what we call progressive sanctification. It just means that when a person becomes a believer, the Lord begins working on that heart and on that soul and will continue to work until the very end. We're supposed to see that and know that and be patient with it. That work's going to take time. In my experience, much conflict in the church could be avoided simply by a better practice of these two things. It's going to take time to work through things together. And we need just to offer kindness throughout all of it in great, great, great measure, overflowing, the same that we would want 
for our, for our own self, the way we want for someone else to offer that to us. In marriage counseling, it's very typical that I'll get together with a brother and he'll say, I really love to talk to you about marriage stuff. I'm struggling with some things with my wife. Okay, let's talk, brother. Let's see if I can hear and maybe point you to some things that could be helpful. And uh, It's incredibly common that a list of problems and issues will come about and frustration and struggle and a desire to get things on the right track. Man, things are painful. It's not fun. I don't feel the love or respect or submission or, or just the warmth that I feel like I should be receiving. I, I don't even get the respect that I think is due in, in a marriage, and I'm just struggling with that. Okay, brother, well, let's try to figure this out together. I try to almost always say something like this. How about this? For the next five to ten years, let's try and fill in the blank. And I'm not saying that to be cute. I'm saying that because we need to be encouraged to be patient. It's going to take time for these things to get fixed. We're getting microwave characteristics of your marriage to be solved next week. It's so typical for us to experience in relationship with others frustrations, and that's very understandable. We're being encouraged to love and be patient and be kind because it's not natural for us to always do that. But we must have a long-suffering approach to relationships. It's going to take a long time, and it's helpful to be reminded sometime you're no peach yourself. She's waiting for you just like you're waiting for her. And show patience with one another. It's so common, I think, for someone to hone in on a particular attribute. My wife's controlling. Home hone in on that one. That's what I want the Lord to sanctify by tomorrow. Like, for the record, that's kind of controlling. <laughs> Brother, your wife may take 10 or 15 years for the Lord to work that significantly. And right now, he's busy working on a whole host of other things that he's prioritizing the Lord gets to determine how and the timing he's going to work in someone else. There are things to be dealt with. But we must approach these things with patience. Lord, help me to be patient with my fellow brother or sister in Christ. The world will sometimes try to keep us from being patient. Well, that's just brushing things under the rug. And that's possible. It is possible. But true patience is not brushing things under the rug. It's an active decision to allow the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to take time, all the while extending kindness. Have you ever, ever stopped to think that this brother that I need to confront or deal with something, we're just kind of not clicking, we need to deal with something. Did you ever think that maybe both you and he need to be a little bit more sanctified before you're ready to solve that problem? That can be very, very true. Being patient is such a good mark of Christian love because our Lord is patient with us. Is it not amazing how when we realize a sin thing we're dealing with or just a behavior, an attitude that is sinful and wrong that the Lord's working on and we look back and go, man, it's been years and I'm still having this worked out of me. Don't you just celebrate the patience of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with me. Thank you. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve your kindness and I keep messing up in the same categories over and over let that be a prompting to our patience with brothers and sisters in our church. Next, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And this is something, this is something we've been particularly working on with our kids at home. I want you just to imagine, imagine being me for a second. Imagine being in, the, in a room and you pick up one of your little daughters and throw her in the air and she, yay, and lands back down. What do you think the others are going to say? Me, me, my turn, me next, me, me, me. Now, what do you think that they will do if I give one kid two turns? Guys, you, you know, because it's natural for us. Well, well, why should they get something I don't get? I want that. 
They shouldn't get something good if I don't. It's like the kid when you give him a chance to pick the dessert, pick the, pick the piece of pie. There's only, there's only one left that has to be cut in half. And what's the, what's the old mom thing? My mom, wise moms have been employing this probably back since the days of Jesus and before. One of you cut it in half, the other one picked the piece. No, it's the only way to determine it's going to be precisely the same sizes. Because naturally, we desire what others have. We want the better piece. We want the greater fun. We want the larger blessing. But biblical love is supposed to mature beyond that kind of thinking. So that we can be filled with joy simply because one of our brothers and sisters has been blessed. I love getting to see on those little signal chats where a brother says some great news that he has and everyone celebrates for the brother. Amen! I don't see guys on there very often saying like, oh man, I wish it happened to me. Because <laughs> we know as we're growing in the Lord, we, we want to get better. Not, not envious, not, not boastful, not wanting what someone else has or thinking better of ourselves than we ought. Not that kind of propped up, arrogance, rudeness that demands better for me than someone else. You ought not look at what another does or says or has and covet. You know what a great way to kick envy in the teeth I learned from a, a dear brother in Christ many years ago. I was a single man. Uh, I was um, loving uh, rock climbing. And a good buddy of mine, we, a Christian friend of mine, we used to go rock climbing together. And uh, some of the gear for rock climbing can be kind of expensive considering it's just like ropes and hooks and stuff like that. And uh, we were eyeing at REI uh, a nice dynamic rope, a couple hundred foot rope that we could do rappelling and a whole bunch of different kind of climbing together. And um, neither of us could afford it. And we wanted to get it for, uh, for weeks went by and we had the same one in mind. Well, he got an extra job and uh, uh, found a way to earn a little bit extra money that wasn't already in the budget. And he went and he bought that rope and then gave it to me. And I still remember looking back then, what a great way to kick envy in the teeth. I still have that rope, and it reminds me even still today about just generous love. Uh, when you do that, if you get something you want for yourself and you just give it to somebody else, I feel like the enemy goes, no! Because we love another more than ourselves. We want better for you. I want you to have even the thing that I wanted. I want it for you. To think better of others than ourselves. What a wonderful thing to do. Do not envy or boast. Because true love isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. And love does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. That is easier said than done, isn't it? How are you at not getting your own way? You sulk or pout, the adult version of it maybe. Can you genuinely get over it and move on when you don't get something that you think you deserve? When you had the better idea, when you had the wiser counsel, but it wasn't followed, I want you to notice, of course, this is not insisting on God's way. You see, it's, it's its own way, right? So it's not a person holding the line. No, the Bible says you can't sin. You can't. It's not that, because that's, that's, of course, appropriate and approved. But it's, it's the things that I want, things that I would prefer above and beyond the other person. You know, working together as a local body of Christ is like running plays on a football team. Each person has their own position to play, but we all have to run the same play. That's how it's supposed to work. And what if you disagree with the play that was called? Will you still give 100% effort? I'm in for victory. I'm in to win the game. 
And that's a bad play call. I don't think that's the best one, but you're all, it's the call? Okay, I'm giving it my all. Because for the record, if it's not arrogant and proud and boastful, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it actually is better. But even if I know, I know it's not, I'm going to give everything to it. Because that's what you do on a godly team, a godly family. You pour your energies into that. And what if, what if, what if the play fails? Is there a part of you that's satisfied? Told you. Right? You secretly satisfied? Man, a great way to test a Christian's maturity, tell them no. See how they react. I've observed this happen many times, especially in my younger pastor days around a whole bunch of other people who'd make decisions that I didn't agree with. And I was like, I don't know, that's not the best way. And humbled time and time again. We oftentimes think we've got the right thing in mind. The Lord is good. Teaches us even when we're wrong. Love does not insist on its own way. It's, it's happy to be part of the team. I just love being part of this family. I wouldn't have picked that meal, but that's what everybody wants. Okay, we're going to eat that meal. This is one of the things I love about having a lot of kids. They almost never get what they want because there's only one of them, and there's six of the kids. It works out great. Have lots of kids. This is another bonus, okay? We have to share everything. Don't insist on our own way. Ah, oh, that's the mature, loving way. It's, it's okay. I, I didn't want to do it, but I'm happy to honor the rest of the body. Love is not irritable or resentful. I think that means that it's not, it's not grumpy. It's not crotchety or cantankerous. It doesn't have a scowl on its face. That's, that's not the way that the brother or sister filled with love looks all the time. The grumpy kind of arms crossed. I'm concerned I'm not getting my way. Or No. When things don't go your way, do you let that irritate you? When something doesn't match a preference, especially in the areas of creature comfort, how do you respond? Um, like, like a kid kicking the back of your seat the entire flight. What's, what's, the, what's the impulse? Well, the impulse is the natural one. Oh my goodness, someone hit that kid. <laughs> or what about the, the, the young mom sitting on the, across from the aisle there, battling a fussy toddler the whole flight? Are, are you the kind of person who, who realizes what's going down sometimes and, and desires to give the kind smile? I didn't, I didn't want to sit on this flight this whole time with this going on. You know what, though? I'm not going to be easy to irritate. Not happening. I just... Not irritable. Love is not irritable. What a great word. This should be the kind of disposition that is all over the church. We're, we're slow to anger. We're slow to frustrate. We're slow to be annoyed. That's what we should be aiming for. And it's not resentful. Resentful. Now, some of your translations... And even if you're, if you're reading in the ESV, as I am today, it might have a footnote down there that says something like this, love keeps no record of wrongs. And that's because in the Greek, that's kind of the idea with this word here. It's kind of the idea. Uh, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. We should be quick to forgive, eager to let things go. You know, when you're in conflict with another person, it's a very natural thing to begin keeping a list of wrongs in your mind. Does this happen to you? It, it, it almost certainly has in your past at some point, I'd bet. Where you get in a confrontation with somebody, a disagreement, and now all of a sudden you begin to notice, you know, that guy's kids are not very well behaved. And all of a sudden you remember that time he gave you a dirty look. And come to think of it, he didn't sign up to help me move that time three years ago. You get it? The list starts to compile. And all of a sudden you start drawing on this, this list of wrongs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're building a case in your mind as to why that guy's wrong. I'm right. As believers, we must 
resist that kind of thinking. We must resist it. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, you could wax over this quickly and just kind of go, well, you shouldn't celebrate sin. Done. That makes sense. Yeah, of course you shouldn't celebrate sin. I think that's explicitly stated in other places. But here, I don't think that's what's meant by it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. I don't think that it means that, hey, there's lots of sin rampant in the church. Don't rejoice with them in it. I don't think that's what's going on. Because this is about relationship with other believers, I think this is probably referring to the fleshly satisfaction we sometimes feel when somebody else falls. Perhaps somebody we envy falls. Have you ever observed pride in another brother or sister? The Bible tells us multiple times pride goes before the fall. Do you ever find yourself hoping for a fall? I think that's what's being said. Don't rejoice at all. Don't, don't aim for that. Don't desire that. Don't seek, oh man, I hope that, you know, I, I gave them counsel. They didn't want to go that way. Well, let's, let's watch how this plays out. I remember as a, as a young youth pastor, I was surrounded by youth all the time who wanted to, to go about dating. I am not on board with the typical dating kind of schemes that happen in our, in our world. So I, I was very clear about what that, the students, it just kind of like went over their head a lot of times. So I had conversations very regularly. Teenage girl, teenage boy, they'd say, hey, Pastor Rich, uh, I've got this new boyfriend. I've got this new girlfriend. And one of the very first questions I'd ask is, hey, is that person a Christian? Well, no, but maybe he will be. You know, that kind of thing tends to come around. And so the counsel would always be, sister, if he's not a believer, you need to cut this off now. This is not honoring to the Lord. There's no way it's going to be good for you. You've got to cut and run. That's not okay. So the same thing to the younger brothers that I knew at that time. Now, virtually every time, sin was the result or pain. And on an occasion, one would even come back and go, Rich, you, you, were, you were right. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I wasn't able to see that, that was a foolish thing to do. And now I've ended up with this mess and I'm hurt. And I don't know what to do with it. Listen, listen. It would be wicked to take joy in that. It would be wicked to be puffed up. I told you so. I think this line does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Never, ever, ever, ever allows the I told you so. We should be saddened when we see sin. And we should rejoice and celebrate truth every time. We should not rejoice when we are right about a prediction that we've made. There's nothing to celebrate when a fellow brother or sister falls into sin. Let us, let us, let's hope. That if a brother or sister takes counsel contrary to what you've given, that the Lord will find a way to bless them anyway. Let that be the hope. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Parents with older children, and I know, feel this in a special way. When they watch the kids that they've grown and raised, they try to teach them how to do the right things, and they do what is wrong. There's no satisfaction there. There's no, there's no joy in that. There's no celebration over the things that your kids do that are wrong. We rejoice with truth. That should be especially prevalent in the church. Quick to celebrate all that is good. Never saying, I told you so. You know, I was in interaction with some pastors last year uh, regarding all the COVID shutdowns, church, church shutdowns, mask mandates. Uh, can you get together in small group? All this kind of stuff. And we took a particular tack that many of you know, leave it up to Christian liberty. That was the way we really went with it. 
And even the pastors at this church talked a little while back, hey, as this is coming into round two and three and four, what if some of those Christian brothers or sisters who made a different choice than we did last year decide now to make the same choice with us? They, they decide to switch their tact and say, okay, from now, now that we really see what's going down, we're not going to shut churches down. What, what, what will we do? And the answer was quick and simple for us. Quickly, without any ask for an apology or any... You're welcome. You're welcome to come right in and be part of with the brothers and sisters here. There's nothing held against you. We are just thrilled to be brothers and sisters at peace moving forward. We want to make it easy for our brothers and sisters to admit when they're wrong. We want to make it easy for them to come and apologize if, if there was the kind of thing that needed that. That we would together rejoice with the truth. I want you to ask yourself in your heart right now, do you do that for other people? Imagine somebody you have a conflict with right now, a belief thing, an activity, something, an event that went down, something like that. The person that you differed with, have you operated in such a way that they, they would feel very confident to come right back and just apologize and you would humbly receive that? Or do you think that they might be concerned you'd make them grovel? Say it again, I was right. No, we just rejoice with the truth. The Lord overlooks so much of our wrong. So often, he's so patient and kind and he's good with us. And the summary is here. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This, of course, is one of those places that all things is qualified by the context here. With respect to all things in God's good and righteous will, we are to bear with one another. All the things with one another. Put up with them. Figure out a way to deal with them with each other. Seek peace. We are to believe good about one another. We are to hope for good for one another and the promises of God fulfilled in their lives. And we are to endure in that love for one another to the end, no matter how hard it may appear and feel at times. In previous weeks, I've commented on those who do not know what their spiritual gifts are. I, I know many who just, I, I want to serve the church. I want to show that love. I, I don't know how God's made me. I don't know. Like, what does he want me to do to show this kind of love to people? I've encouraged in the past, and I'll say it again, that you begin by putting natural skills to work. That's a really obvious place. You don't know the supernatural way that God's made you? Then start putting things into place right now. You, I know I can do that. Seek out ways that you may meet needs in the church. Get to know the people who have needs and then fulfill them. And here I'm, I'm going to add another point built on this passage today. Cultivate a heart of love for those in your church. Start doing these things in all the other areas and parts of your life. It's a, it's a long list. It's going to take you the rest of your lifetime to, to chase this down. You're never going to arrive, but it is a worthy pursuit. And until you feel confident in what God designed you to go do in your local church and, and to be a benefit to the people around you, but even before you know that, start doing this. That if that were to become clear to you, you'd already know that it's to be exercised in love. I'll repeat again what Jesus said in Matthew 22. When he was asked about the greatest commandment, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I want to summarize all the law of God. Love God first, people second, self last. 
That's, that's the summary. If you're doing that, all the other obedience to the law is just naturally flows. It's so obvious, those things. If you're exercising your gifts in love, if you're having a hard time loving someone, you need to go to the source of love itself. Go to God and to be filled with love. Then you'll have something to take back to your brother. Love is an emotion, to be sure. But it is more than just an emotion. It is an action, and thus it is something that we must decide in our hearts to act according to. You and I are responsible for the love that we have in our hearts and the lack of love we may at times have in our hearts. And the only way that we can even begin to do this rightly is to follow the model of our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus. You need to know, if you don't today, that you are a dirty, rotten sinner. And because of that, quite honestly, you need to hear it. You're not lovable by a perfect, all-holy, all-righteous God. There's nothing commendable in you or in me when God looks down and sees our wicked sinfulness. And this is what the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No one even seeks after God. This is the state of our hearts. And when you acknowledge and begin to realize that, the fact that God sent his only son to live the perfect life you should have lived and die the death that you should have died, will you then be able to realize just how big his love is? So wait, he didn't just extend that love because I give him something in return. No, you got nothing to offer him. If you're not a believer today, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. That means to believe that Jesus is who he said that he is, that he went to the cross to die the penalty, pay the penalty for all of your sins, that they may be taken away from you and that you may have eternal life with Jesus. Faith in him alone. If you've not done this, if you've not repented of your sins and turned in faith to Jesus, talk to a Christian today before you leave. Get this squared away. It is of utmost importance in your life and in your eternity. Today we're going to spend a few moments in communion, which symbolizes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It proclaims his death until he comes. Pastor Luke's going to come lead us through that in a moment. But I just want to go ahead and close our sermon time with a prayer, asking the Lord to equip us to do what we could not do if he didn't show us how. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We trust you. We love that you have taught us in your word what it means to love and how to love, and yet, yet we still stumble and we struggle. Lord, we couldn't possibly love perfectly. You alone can love perfectly, but you have enough perfect love to overcome and overwhelm all of our sin. So Lord, help us to be reminded by that all the time. When we struggle with showing love to our brother or sister in Christ, help us to be quick to be reminded by the gospel that although unlovable, unworthy, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, help us to be filled and equipped with that kind of love, that whatever type of gifts or skill set we are to put to use for the service of the church would be done in a way that is honoring to you, that is pleasing to you, that is helpful for our brothers and sisters and is good for our own souls. Please help us to do that. And help us especially, Lord, as we think about the, the dead body of Jesus hanging on the cross, buried in the ground, that didn't stay there. And Father, help us as we have communion this morning to think rightly about even what that means. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.